O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's what we just sang. And that song really captures the heart of Advent. I still feel fairly new to Advent. I was introduced to it five years ago when I started pastoring a ministry in Durham, North Carolina uh, for the better part of my life. Just Advent wasn't a thing. Uh, so I still annually look it up just to refresh and remind myself of this season and what it's all about. And as I'm refreshing myself, I just want to use some of what uh, was on my heart to remind us of what we're going into and why we're even doing this. And so as I looked up Advent, see that it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And so for the believers, it's a time where we prepare for the celebration of the birth of Christ. But what I also saw was there is a definition that means it's preparation for the second coming of Christ. And so I think of Advent, and while we typically, historically, what the church does is spend the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day preparing for the celebration of the birth of Christ. But then as I thought of this definition also being preparation for the second coming of Christ, I was thinking to myself, well, how do we do that? And when do we do that? Four weeks leading up to December the 25th? No, that's a life that we live in obedience to God, preparing for the return of Jesus Christ. And so I feel a little conflicted. I want to preach about three sermons simultaneously, but we're going to look to do just one. But all of this, while we're preparing for the birth of Christ, the reason why we celebrate his birth is because of his death. And the reason why we celebrate his death is because of his resurrection. And the reason why we still look to be faithful until the day that the Lord calls us home or Jesus Christ returns is because we know that he's coming back again. So it's a full story. We're preparing for the celebration of the birth, but we're preparing to celebrate the birth because he came to die. And he died and he rose and he's coming back again. So Advent is a season of preparation Yes, for the birth, but also for his return. So I pray that our hearts and minds are fixed to Jesus. And I'm going to lean in in a really beautiful way, I pray, that points us to Christ and Christ alone. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And for today's uh, sermon, we're going to be looking at the reason that Jesus came in the first place. And I say the uh, sin solution is what I would refer to it as. And we're going to unpack some of chapter 3 and see why it's important to celebrate why Advent has any purpose or meaning in the life of the church and why we would do this annually. Before we jump into Genesis 3, I ask that you would pray for me and pray with me. Father, we are grateful that you and your infinite wisdom would bless us with this treasure trove that we call the Bible. And that you would speak to us and through us through your spirit so that we might know that you are God and you are God alone. That we might know that Jesus is God the Son and that he came so that we might have the right to the tree of life. And that we are filled with the spirit of God so that we might be faithful followers until the day that you call us home or Jesus Christ returns. So on this morning, 
we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that would captivate our minds, point us to Jesus, and remember what we just sang, that the fullness of joy is found in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband." but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. The word of God is good all by itself. We see in the story of Genesis, starting at the first chapter, that God in the beginning created. And everything that God created, the scripture tells us, was good. And then on the sixth day after he created man, the scripture tells us that everything God created was very good. And then he rested. And then chapter 2 gives us a breakdown of God's creation of man. And he lets us know in his word that he created man from the dust and then he put man under a deep sleep, the first surgical procedure, and took a rib from man and made woman. And then man sees woman and says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The two are now one. And verse 25 of chapter 2 tells us, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, experiencing a depth of intimacy and relationship that is like none other. They have a bond between each other that causes them to be one. But this bond is not just for them and between them. They also have a bond with their creator. And so this idea of naked, yes, it speaks to they were literally without clothing, but it also paints a picture of emotional and spiritual connection, which is why the scriptures let us know that they were not ashamed. They had no guilt, no embarrassment, so they expressed themselves openly and freely in relationship with each other. But then chapter 3 lets us know that this all changed. It lets us know how this came to change, and it started with a conversation. The serpent and Eve engaged in a dialogue. And the serpent, the craftiest animal in the garden, enters into a dialogue with Eve, asking her a question, which is so tricky. Can you not eat of any of the trees? Like, well, you know. Right? But Eve lets him know, no, we can eat of all the trees. There's just this one tree in the middle of the garden that we cannot eat from. But she didn't only say we can't eat from it. She also said that we can't touch it. And she understood what God had communicated because she said, if we eat or touch it, we will die. And that's where the conversation should have ended. Eve, thank you. We're done. And I'm moving on. But the serpent comes with a follow-up. You won't surely die. It's like, wait a minute. God said we will die won't surely die? Like, what are, you, what are you trying to do, serpent? But Eve continues to entertain the conversation, and the serpent lets her know that you eat of this tree, and your eyes will be open. And this eyes being open speaks to wisdom. You will know like God knows, good and evil. And then we see that this conversation led to a catastrophic decision. And we see how Eve was set up for this decision. Verse 6 tells us, so... When the woman saw the tree, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it says she took the fruit and she ate. But it started long before she took. The scripture says that she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes and that it was a desire to make one wise and that word wise is saying that her eyes would be opened. This word saw is not that Eve all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, oh, 
look, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. I didn't see that tree there. No, it's not that she saw it for the first time. What the scripture is communicating that she looked at this tree now with longing eyes. She now had a desire. Her heart was being drawn to want to take of this fruit. And so what we see here is that there was the pride, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes and the pride of life that Eve's heart was now drawn to want to go and see what all this fruit had to offer. And so because now she had a desire, she was looking longingly at the tree that God said, don't even touch it, much less eat it, to maybe there's something there that I should go after. And so what we see in Eve's heart is the same thing that we've seen maybe in our hearts at one point, we see in the hearts of others, is that what we desire, we do. And so now because Eve had a desire to eat of this fruit, what did she do? She went and touched it and she ate it. And then she hands it over to Adam and he does the same. So this catastrophic decision that was birthed out of this conversation happened because there was a shift in the desire of Adam and Eve to now want to not just be in relationship with God, naked and unashamed, but to be like God, to be God. And that caused them to drift into a place that they really didn't want to go. And so now we see these significant consequences that come as a result of Adam and Eve choosing to do what God said don't do. In a word, we call that sin. So we see the results of sin. And one thing that stands out very quickly is that sin births shame. It says here in verse 7b, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is not to be lost on us that this is the first time in the creation story that man has now had to make something for themselves. Every other passage that we read leading up to this point, God created, and it was good. But now, because of sin, man is making something to cover themselves up. And so man makes these fig leaves to hide behind the fig leaves because there's shame that enters into the picture. There's this painful feeling of humiliation and despair that's caused by being aware that I've made a wrong or foolish decision. And so they try to cover up from one another, but it doesn't stop there. The scriptures say that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God from among, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now here God is in the garden of Eden. And the scriptures let us know that Adam and Eve now hide themselves behind a tree in the garden. But what I found really interesting was that Adam and Eve did not hide themselves behind a tree because God was walking through the garden in and of himself. It wasn't the presence of God that terrified them. So apparently, at some point in their relationship, they were accustomed to being in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden so that the presence of God didn't terrify them. Now, you think of every other story. After this moment, when an angel or the angel of the Lord or the presence of God is in the room, people fall faint and die. Moses couldn't even see but the backside or else he would die because he couldn't take God in. But that's not Adam and Eve's response. The presence of God did not terrify them. The scripture says the reason that they hid was because they were naked. 
He says, and he said, this is Adam responding to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid, not because of your presence, but because I was naked and I hid myself. Before they were naked and unashamed, but now they find themselves filled with shame because there's been a break in their relationship with God because they have chosen to disobey God. So man has some self-imposed consequences for their sin. God hasn't even communicated or spoken into the situation yet. God just coming in, minding his business, walking through the garden like we always do. Adam and Eve find themselves making loincloths for themselves. Well, why'd you do that? Nobody told you you had to do that. Why are you hiding behind a tree? Nobody told you you had to hide behind a tree. Because they became aware that they had made a foolish decision. And so now they're trying to cover it up in and of themselves. But God doesn't just leave them there. He enters in and he pursues Adam and Eve. And so he has this conversation now with them. Who told you that you ate, that you're naked? Did you eat from the tree? And you see this separation that starts to enter into the storyline because of sin. So just a moment ago, as we saw in chapter 2, Adam and Eve were one. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But now Adam is not talking about oneness. Adam's response to God in verse 12 is the woman who you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Like, hold on, Adam, I thought this was bone of your bone. And flesh of your flesh. Now it's no, this woman you gave me. So that's what shame does. Shame deflects. It blames. I'm not going to own this one. Nope. I didn't ask for her. I was in the garden minding my business. We were cool. I didn't eat anything. And then you give me this woman, and now she got me over here sinning. It's her fault. That's what sin does. Just cause separation. There's no now connection. He's deflecting blame. And Eve does the same thing. Again, that shame, it just keeps on going. Look, I, I, I was deceived. The serpent made me do it. He did not take the fruit, put it in your hand, and then make you bite, chew, and swallow. You did that. No, but the serpent deceived me. And now we see God enter into the conversation with the consequences that come as a result of sin. And ultimately, it leads to separation, but first we see a whole lot of pain. The serpent, verse 14, is cursed above all livestock, And then we could jump over to verse 16 and see that the woman is going to give birth in pain. Her labor will be in pain, but now also her relationship is going to be painful. What once was a beautiful union, no shame. They were naked, fully known and seen by one another. Now there's going to be this tension, pain in her labor, pain in her relationship. And man doesn't get off the hook either. Because you have listened, because you have chosen to do what your wife said do, after I told you not to, now the ground is cursed because of Adam, and in pain, he's going to labor. Now, before, what was supposed to be a nice, smooth, and easy process, which I don't know how that would have looked gardening with ease and no sweat, but it was not supposed to be as taxing as it was going to be or as it is now. But because of sin, by the sweat of his brow, can you imagine not having to sweat? You're just running and it's just an easy job because everything comes smooth and easy. But now there's pain that enters the picture because of sin. And ultimately, exactly what Eve said would happen Because she knew what God had said, it comes about. The wages of sin is death. It leads to separation. For you are dust, and to dust 
you shall return. And so now the Lord drives Adam and Eve out of the garden because they've eaten of the tree. And now they can't eat from the tree of life or else they could mess around and try to become like God. So God drives them out of the garden, drives them out of his presence. And if that's where the story end, ended, it would be a most dismal story. There'd be nothing to celebrate. Pain, fear, tears, we would just be waiting our time out until the end. And it would be misery. But that's not where the story ends. Intertwined in all of this pain, we see the compassion of a caring creator. The Lord addresses their shame. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Here, many theologians argue that we see the first sacrifice made. God takes an animal, and clearly if you're going to get the skin off the animal, the animal has to die. So there's a sacrifice made, and then God takes this skin and clothes Adam and Eve. The loins that they made, it wasn't going to be enough to cover their shame. But God enters in and says, I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to cover you. I'm going to clothe you. God dressed them. Now, I don't know how that may have looked, but I picture as a parent dressing a baby. It's not a rough, like, get your arm in here. Well, I mean, it could be like that if they're wrestling with you, like, we got to go. But typically, if they're tender, you know, and then then they're they're sweet and gentle, you're like, oh, come on. And, you know, it's just so, it's like, man, just put the shoe on, but it's, I don't want to hurt their toe, right? And it's just a really gentle process. I picture that. That's, That's my spiritual imagination. But I picture God dressing them, clothing them, just gracious mercifully saying, you know what? You have made a complete and utter mess of things. And you deserve exactly what's coming to you. But I'm going to extend grace and mercy. And he clothes them with skin to cover, to cover them. The very thing that they now were trying to hide. God clothes them and covers them. So it addresses their present pain. That shame that they're feeling and trying to hide from each other and hide from God. But God also addresses their eternal pain. He enters in and has a solution for the separation that came because of sin. And we see that here in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This word enmity means hatred, a division, a separation. There's going to be no gelling between these two. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of woman. And this word is to be understood in a singular possessive. It's a seed. So it's not seeds or offsprings. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, which is why it goes on to, again, go with this singular pronoun, he, not them. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the scriptures let us know that Jesus is that seed that was promised to come to deal with the issue that has come as a result of sin. This death, this separation that has come between man and woman and between mankind and God. I'm sending a seed 
that's going to address this issue. And so Matthew, and you can go to any of the Gospels, but I'm just going to sit in Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 1, looking at verse 18, tells us how this seed, the, the Son of God, enters in to provide the solution that came as a result of sin. So that there would be no separation between God and his creation. Since says here, starting at verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the seed of woman was birthed through the Holy Spirit. And so we see now God the Son is this offspring that comes from the mother Mary of Jesus, but the father the Holy Spirit sent to now see Mary conceive and give birth to Jesus Christ. So God, the Son, 100% man, but 100% God enters into the picture. The seed, the offspring that's going to be at enmity, at odds with the seed, the offspring of the serpent, which we can summarize as sin, has now entered into the picture. And his purpose is very clear. He was sent, the seed came to be a sacrifice to save his people from their sins. And the gospel lets us know how this seed would now be the one to bruise the head of the serpent. Jesus lives a perfect life without sin. And now we see here in Luke, I'm going to jump over to Luke chapter 23 and read a little bit here. Jesus now is going to the cross to be crucified, to die for the sins of his people. And the place that he goes to be crucified is called Calvary, also known as Golgotha, which means the skull. Verse 33 of Luke, chapter 23, reads, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. In verse 44 through 46, it was now about the sixth hour, which is about noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which was about three. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus, the seed, is also the sacrifice who goes to the skull, and it's at that place that he bruises, crushes the head of the serpent. 
Because it's in Golgotha that he dies for the sins of the world. And the scriptures let us know that death now no longer has its sting. And the grave has no victory. Because Jesus Christ was willing to be the solution to man's sin. And pay the price for sin. And the scriptures let us know that this is how we are to understand this story. So it's not, hey, Michael, I think you're making a big leap there. You're going from Genesis and then jumping all the way to Matthew, and you you're probably have some gaps there, and you're making up some things. Well, Romans tells us that we are to understand this story this way. Romans chapter 5, if time would let me, I'd read 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 5, a few verses from chapter 6, but when you have time, excuse me, make time this week to read chapter 5 and 6. You cannot really appreciate the gift of Jesus Christ if you don't know who he is and what he's done. So it pains me to read a few verses, but I'm going to read a few verses, trusting that you're going to read chapter 5 and 6, and I'm seeing who's in the room. I'm going to make random phone calls by Friday <laughs> to about two people. And if you didn't read it, next time I preach, I'm reading chapter 5 and 6. <laughs> Kevin, you better read it. You know I'm serious. Verse 12 <clears throat> of chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, here is talking about Adam, the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. Now death entered into God's creation through this one man, Adam. Jumping over to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, which communicates right relationship with God. A good picture brought naked and unashamedness. We'll just use that word today. Between God and his people now, there was no reason for them to have guilt or embarrassment, they can now be in right standing with the Lord and experience his presence once again. So Jesus' sacrifice brought about justification. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through, that, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans chapter 6, 23, tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we look back and remember Genesis 3 because of sin, death entered into God's creation. God did not create man to die. Death was the result of disobedience. And there had to be a payment for that. And that one sacrifice that was made to cover man's shame, many more animals would have to die to continue to provide a pathway for man to stay connected with God. But Jesus Christ, the perfect payment, now we don't have to kill animals anymore to cover our shame. Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ now cleans and wipes away all guilt and shame so that we can be justified. We can now be naked and unashamed in the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures say you don't have to earn it. It's a free gift. Anybody need me to break down free? Right. We understand what free means. It's a free gift. You come to Jesus, accept what he has paid, and you now will accept also the gift of Christ and have a right relationship with the Lord. Now, again, many of us may have different traditions in how we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on December the 25th, and I'm not going to dive into what your traditions may be. But if you do give gifts, if you have ever received a gift before, we all understand that if I don't know how to use this gift, this gift is pointless. Oh, thank you. What is it? Right? I don't know what this is. So if I don't know how to use it, like, that's great, and I just put it up there. And if it's a gift that really... It seems pointless to me. I don't understand its value. It's like, oh, great. And then you know what you do. No judgment. But you keep it wrapped up. And you re-gift it. That's so gracious of you. No, it's not. You didn't like it. You should just tell the truth. But that's what we do, right? If we don't see the value in it, we give it away. Right? But if we understand the value and we understand how to use this gift, oh, I'm excited and anticipating to open that gift. And not just open it. I'm going to open it and use it. And I'm going to use it as long as I can. I mean, I've seen kids, when they get a game system, you, you have to make them go to bed now. They'll stay up for three days straight just playing. It's like, you are going to pass out. The sleep deprivation, I'm fine. Right? You can, you can get a kid to do just about anything. I don't think you should bribe them because they should just do what you say because you feed them, clothe them, and house them. But if you gave them a gift, like, if you want your gift, you're going to have to act nice. Okay, mommy. It's like, no, see? Oh, that's just it's a dad moment. <clears throat> but it shouldn't take that. But you can get a kid to do just about anything if it's a gift that they value and that they want to use. And so I want to spend the next just few fleeting moments making sure that as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, that we value this gift and that we understand how to use this free gift that God has given us. So this story that we heard, sin that leads to separation, sin that births shame, we all have been born into sin, shaped in iniquity, and it doesn't take much to see that I am all about me. From You don't have to teach it. One month, two months, one year, ten years. You see that I am out for me, myself, and I. Born in the sin, shaped in iniquity. 
I'm on a pathway that's going to take me to a place that I really don't want to be. But God, in his grace and his mercy, allows his only begotten son to be wrapped up in flesh, a gift packaged just for you and just for me. God, because of who he is, cannot water down the requirements that he has put in place. The wages of sin will always be death. But now Jesus Christ paid that price so that we wouldn't have to. Is that not a gift of great value, of great worth? And if you don't think that it is, then you will have to stand before God and make full payment yourself. And if you don't understand what that means, please, I will stay for as long as I need to today to make sure that I can unpack it and explain it. But if you have come to Jesus Christ, then you understand just as well as I do that that's not a payment that I want to make. I want to enter in off of the grace and mercy of a loving God who would allow his son to be the perfect payment the substitutionary sacrifice for my sins. And so because I'm willing to accept this payment, this free gift, the scriptures let us know how we are to use, how we are to walk in this gift that we have in Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under Grace And what, again, so you'll read over it this week when you're reading over chapter 6, but it's talking about identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're now connected with Christ. And so we do not use these members, our bodies, which have been purchased with a price, to join with sin. We now use our body as instruments for righteousness. And righteousness, what that's communicating is living in obedience to God. And so John, a disciple of Jesus Christ, lets the church know what that looks like lived out. How do we present our members now as instruments of righteousness? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here John essentially, if we can make the connection, is saying don't make the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. 
do not long for anything other than the Lord. Right? This is the same challenge that Eve had. She looked at the tree. She saw this tree. That it was good for food, the desires of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise, the desires of the flesh. And it was that longing that led Eve to walk away from the relationship she had with God to try to do things on her own. And then came shame and separation. And now she needed help. We can learn from that lesson. Don't long for anything other than the Lord. Don't go after it. If you do, that's of the world. And you will find yourself living in sin. How do I then live in a way that's pleasing to God? Do his will. Whoever does the will of God will abide forever, will have eternal life. So I have this gift that I've unpacked from Jesus Christ. And now I want to make sure that I use this gift well. What does that look like? Live for Obey him. Give him your whole life. And if you are willing to do the will of God, you will experience the eternal life that Christ purchased for you and for me. That's what the Lord is calling us to today. Not to run after anything or anyone else. He lets us know the deceptive tactics of the enemy. There's nothing good in what he's presenting to you. I know it may seem good. I know it may look like it's desirable to make one wise, but I'm telling you it's a lie. And it will kill you. He didn't say just don't eat it. Don't even touch it. Don't desire it. Don't long for it. Look to God and God alone, right? That's why that song we sang needs to resonate in our souls. The fullness of joy only comes from Jesus. If I don't believe that, I will look longingly for something else. And I will leave the one thing, the only thing that can satisfy my soul. And the Lord wants us to know, don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus is worth our undivided devotion. Anyone who's willing to do what Jesus Christ did is worth our undivided devotion. But as we prepare for this great celebration on December the 25th, allow me to enter into your living room on an early morning as you're getting ready to open up the gifts under the tree. What's really pulling you on December the 25th? Is it the gift that we have in Jesus? Or the gifts under the tree, the priority? See, I grew up opening gifts. In our household, we celebrate Christmas slightly different because of those impacts and experiences that I've had. I grew up going to church every Sunday, but I couldn't care less about Jesus. And Christmas Day was a great celebration for me if I got what I wanted under the tree. Jesus was the furthest thing from my mind. But every year, I was in the plays, I sang the songs. Listen, I just want to challenge us this season. 
We say Jesus is the reason for the season. He's not just the reason for the season. He's the reason we live, move, and have our being. I'm not saying don't have gifts. I'm not saying don't open gifts. But what I am saying is make sure that there is no gift that's greater than the gift of Jesus Christ. Right? The lights and all of these things, they could be great if they help us to remember the light of our soul. The gift could be pleasant if it helps us to remember that we've been given a free gift that brings about eternal life. But these very things that are supposed to be reminders could be distractions. And now we start longing for something else. Now we start working extra hours because I want to make sure that I get my kid this gift that they want. And so now I'm not spending as much time with them, pouring into them, and teaching them about the love of Jesus. Listen, if you want to give Jesus a gift, give our kids, give people Christ. Package up a card. I don't know what you need to do, but let them know that Jesus loves them. Everything else, the scriptures say, is fading away, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a crying shame that we would say we're celebrating Christmas and don't think about Christ even a little bit. I'm going to call the praise team up because I feel myself starting to go. Because <clears throat> I want us to really sit in this. I really want us to be challenged by this because it is, it weighs on my heart in a significant way that we have this free gift in Christ. And while I hear it being said, it's not always being lived. And I'm wrestling with it too. Not coming in on a high horse saying, and I'm doing it all right all the time. But what I am saying is that we need to wrestle. We need to be real. We don't need to act like we're doing it. We need to make sure that we're doing it. And ask yourself the question, what am I longing for? What has been a distraction for me? What is it that's deceiving me to think that if I can get this, that it'll be all right? That if I can just accomplish this, then I know that I'll make it. That my joy is going to come in the fill in the blank. And it's very easy in a world that spends billions of dollars on marketing to get distracted. There are many conversations that happen in our lives. Conversations like Eve had. Well, I mean, you won't sure. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just, it's just a little. It's just a little thing. It's just, it's just a little lie. You know what I've learned about sin? It never stays small. It always costs you more than you want to pay. Keeps you longer than you want to stay. And takes you further than you ever intended to go. But it starts just really small. And that's how the distractions enter into our lives. Oh, no, no, I'm celebrating Jesus. No, we're not. No, we're not. Because Jesus lets us know. You want to celebrate the gift of Christ? Then obey me. You want to give, you want to use this gift right? Then trust me. You really want 
this gift to be the anchor of your soul, abide in me. You can go a lifetime without gifts. One gift, freely given. You don't have to work extra hours. You don't have to try and clean up your mess. You don't have to make your own loincloths. You don't have to hide behind trees. The Savior's come. Listen. Don't let it get old. Don't go numb. This is not just the Christmas story. This is a life-changing story. It never gets old. It's a gift that we open up daily, that we remind ourselves of regularly. What are you going to do over these next four weeks to make sure that you anchor your soul in the free gift of Christ? What are you going to stop doing to make sure that you're not distracted chasing after something else? Stop working extra hours and spend some more time with the family. Stop chasing after all of the other things and let's be connected in community. Everybody's so busy, right? This is the time that we celebrate Jesus. But yet we can't sit down and get together. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you in, in January or February. I don't, I don't have any time. You know, it's a December. It's a busy time. I'm working a lot of extra hours. It, hold on. Jesus says that he wants us to be a family. So what are you really doing that for? Doing that for Jesus? No, you're not. No, I'm not. So do you have it? Do you know what it is that's becoming a distraction? Let's take it to the altar. Let's lay it down. Let's cut it off. Let's cut it out. We've gotten the only gift we need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that today? Last thing, and then we're going to pray. I had a conversation. This is, someone asked me, Michael, do you always feel full? I always feel full in Jesus, but I feel pain in this life. But the reason why I feel this so heavy in my soul and why I just don't feel to let it go. I had a conversation with someone yesterday that I love with all of me. I'm going to hold it together. I love with all of me. And they told me something that broke my heart. They said they don't know if Jesus is real. Man. At one point, they said that Jesus is the Christ. I talked with them for over an hour, just asking questions, wanting to understand, how'd you get there? And we've had so many conversations. And this was the first time that I ever even heard that. And at this point, they're talking to me. They know me. And they said, Michael, I think that they don't call me Michael. That means it's a deep, meaningful relationship. They call me things nobody else is going to call me in a good way. <clears throat> and they told me, Michael, I think it's narrow-minded, arrogant and bullheaded to think that someone could say that they know the only way. I said, you do know that I'm a pastor. Like, so what you're telling me is, you think I'm arrogant, narrow-minded, and bullheaded? I mean, 
I would have never thought 10, 20, 40 years from now that I would ever have this conversation with that person. And they've celebrated many Christmases. Oh. They would not hear me. But I pray that you do. Please. Don't let the accessories become a distraction. Dive deep. Open the gift. That's Jesus. If you don't, I don't want to have that conversation with you. What caused you to drift away? It was a little thing, and it kept growing. And now she renounced the faith. I really want you to wrestle with that well. Because if you leave here today distracted by anything, my fear is you find yourself like Adam and Eve. And Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to be separated anymore. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will satisfy but Jesus Christ. So for a couple of minutes, I want us to pray. You and Jesus, you know what it is. The distractions, the deception. Let's take it to the Lord so that we can truly celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done.